as you've heard for years and years, uh, you know where we're going to be. Uh, we're, we're in this section in the middle of the book of Ezekiel where uh, Ezekiel is having to address the sins of the nation. And he's describing sin in a way that is very, very graphic. Uh, we, we pick up the story here in Ezekiel chapter 22, and we'll be going back to chapter 20 where we left off last week, but I, I wanted to give just a little glimpse of the, what it felt like for Ezekiel, a crying out to the people, asking them not only to be on their knees, praying for their nation, a people chosen by God to be a, a blessing to the surrounding nations, now 900 miles removed in captivity in a foreign country, Babylon. You would think someone would want to you know, have compassion upon the nation of Israel, that they would actually want to pray for the people. It says in Ezekiel chapter 22, verses 30 to 31, I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. I, I searched for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land. But I found no one. So now I will pour out my fury on them. Consuming them with the fire of my anger. I will heap on their heads the full penalty for all their sins. And that phrase that is used more often in Ezekiel than any other place in the entire Bible. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. And so, Father, tonight as we approach your throne, I ask that your word would not return void. We thank you for that. This, this hard section in the book of Ezekiel, I know these, my friends and my family, could be anywhere else, but they've chosen to be here tonight. Lord, I ask that you bless their time, that you would convict us first, and those that, whether we, we tell or get to view this later, or those at home, Lord, I ask that you would just help us, Lord, to examine ourselves, especially on a Communion Wednesday, where, where we have the privilege of coming before you and, and knowing that you have uh, not only removed our sins, but provided a, a way for us to have access into the very throne room of a holy and righteous God. So convict us tonight first. Convict us of our sins. Help us to see our uh, lethargy, our um, traditions that we put before a relationship with a, a loving God. All the things that we substitute for you, the idols, the detestable sins, the backslidings, the hardness of our own heart, the stiffness of our own neck, the way that we turn our back upon a God who died for us. And so, Lord, help us tonight as we read these chapters that we would understand them and apply them to our lives and then be able to share them with someone else, Lord. I thank you for these, my friends, that are represented here. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Chapter 20, we, we pick up where we left off uh, last week. We are in, in this section between chapter 16 and chapter 23 that are bookmarked by these massive chapters full of graphic detail of what it means uh, to rebel against God. And of course, it all comes down to is chapter 16 and chapter 23 really in their graphic way, in their very descriptive way, describe sin as not just rebellion against God, just something that we kind of, you know, lapse over in our society today. But God defines it literally as adultery. I idolatry, anything that I put before God is acting like a harlot, an adulterer, someone who would literally sleep around. 
In chapter 20, it's described like this. On August 14th, during the seventh year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, some of the leaders of Israel came to request a message from the Lord. They sat down in front of me to wait for his uh, reply. And of course, Ezekiel is the one that receives these visions. We're going to see a lot of them later on in chapter uh, 21. He's literally uh, the media of the day. He's seen what is happening way back in uh, Jerusalem as the walls are surrounded by Babylon. King Jehoiakim, you remember, he was um, blinded right after he saw his two sons killed before his eyes. Babylon took him into captivity. He is now in the same land where Ezekiel is there on the river Kibar along with Daniel and Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the palace in Babylon. These people, these blue-collar workers, those that were taken second in the captivity, they're asking Ezekiel for a message from God. We want to hear a message from God, and for us it sounds innocent. But for Ezekiel and God, they know their hearts. Then this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, tell the leaders of Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. How dare you come to me asking me for a message? As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I will tell you nothing. Wow. Does God shut them up right away? And if we take this out of context, it seems very you know, dramatic, uh, very harsh from God. But if you've been here or been able to watch the previous uh, lessons, you know the heart of the people. These people have not only turned their back upon God, they've desired with every single fiber of their being to ignore God. And now, whether these troubles are coming up or they're, they're hearing about troubles in their, their homeland, they're asking these things, God, give us a, a new word. Tickle our ears, God. Give us something that maybe can, you know, help us. After they rebelled, after they've sinned and not repented. Verse 4, we see exactly how God sees them. Son of man, bring charges against them and condemn them. Make them realize how detestable the sins of their ancestors really are. Give them this message from the sovereign Lord. When I choose Israel, when I revealed myself to the descendants of Jacob in Egypt, I took a solemn oath. That I, the Lord, would be their God. And this is a promise that God had made, what we call a covenant. This goes all the way back to the Mosaic uh, covenant. And there had been many, many covenants before the Abrahamic covenant, the Adamic covenant, uh, the Noahic covenant. But this refers to what is called the, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God gave to the people in Egypt before he removed them from uh, the land, the book of Exodus. You see, God had made a promise and he never backed down on it. As we've seen many times in the book of Ezekiel. There's an authoritative statement that is repeated again more times in the book of Ezekiel than any other book in the Bible. It's this title for God called the Sovereign Lord. You see, the, the title that God is using here is, is 282 times written in the Bible. Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord. If you've been with us, you've seen it repeated so many times. In fact, in the book of Ezekiel, it's repeated 210 times. More than 70% of the time it is repeated in the book of Ezekiel. God, God is putting his stamp, his authority behind the message that Ezekiel is presenting to the people of Israel. And remember, Ezekiel is from the line of, of Levi, literally from the line of Aaron. He's a priest now at the age of 30. He should be in the temple, but the temple's destroyed. And of course, he's 900 miles away. He is a priest without a temple. By the way, the people have no temple. 
They're being judged for their sins. For 70 years, they're going to be in a foreign country. Why is God being so harsh with them? Why, why does it seem like God is so harsh with, you know, certain people? We're so quick to forget our own sins. We're, we're so quick uh, to forget what we have done to offend God. We think that we are righteous, blameless, holy ourselves. Oh God, it wasn't my fault. It was their person, that person's fault. We saw that last week. Look at what God says about the covenant that he gave in verse 6. I took a solemn oath that day that I would bring them out of Egypt to a land I had discovered and explored for them, a, a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the best of all lands anywhere. God had reserved this place way back when Abraham had seen it, him and Lot, and Lot had chosen Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham had chosen the rest of the land. You know, after giving his nephew first choice, God said, I'm going to give you this land, all of it, as far as your eyes can see. He kept the promise, by the way. Some 200 years later, when the people of Israel come through the wilderness, go to the promised land, God had saved that land for them, preserved it, giving them a land of milk and honey. Verse 7, then I said to them, each of you get rid of the vile images you are so obsessed with. Do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt, for I... And the Lord your God, don't take the baggage from Egypt. Don't, don't take the, the things that you had become accustomed to in Egypt. The idols, the various gods. Come to a new land and make yourselves holy and righteous. This land that has been set apart for you. Now you be set apart unto me, God. But what did they do? And of course, this is a synopsis of, you know, Exodus all the way through uh, the end of the captivity here as we come to the present day in Ezekiel's time. But they rebelled against me and would not listen. They did not get rid of the vile images. They were obsessed with or forsake the idols of Egypt. And I threatened to pour out my fury on them to satisfy my anger while they were still in Egypt. But I didn't do it. For I acted to protect the honor of my name. I would not allow shame to be brought upon my name among the surrounding nations who saw me reveal myself by bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. Even in the midst of their sin as they're literally making these golden calves, Aaron and the other leaders of Israel, and worshiping them. God is saying, I'm still giving them mercy and grace. You remember the story, right? What did God want to do? Wipe them all out, right? I'll start over new with you, Moses. But who was it that pleaded for the people? Who stood in the gap, by the way? Moses did. He pleaded with God. No. So God was gracious. And by the way, this happened over and over and over. For hundreds and hundreds of years, God was gracious and merciful with the people of Israel. As he is with us too, by the way. Thank God. They, they had grace and mercy even back then, even in the Old Testament. What was the tipping point? Verse 10, so I brought them out of Egypt and led them into the wilderness. There I gave them my decrees and regulations so they could find life by keeping them. I gave them my Sabbath days of rest as a sign between them and me. I was to remind them that I am the Lord who had set them apart at, to be holy. Why had God chosen Israel? To be a sign to the people of God's holiness as they, they literally wandered in the wilderness and they, then later on when Solomon built that glorious temple literally covered in gold and the presence of God dwelt there in the holy of holies over the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. If you were with us when we were in the book of Jeremiah, we saw literally the fall of that temple. 
the tearing down of that temple. And then in Ezekiel, earlier on in chapter 10, we saw the glory of God leave. For the first time since those people had wandered in the wilderness when the glory of God literally came as a, a cloud by day, a fire by night, the glory of God resting here on earth amongst a people has now left. The land has been destroyed. The walls have been torn down. Verse 13, but the people of Israel galled against me and they refused to obey my decrees there in the wilderness. They wouldn't obey my regulations, even though obedience would have given them life. They also violated my Sabbath days, so I threatened to pour out my fury on them. And I made plans to utterly consume them in the wilderness. But again, I held back in order to protect the honor of my name before the nations who had seen my power in bringing Israel out of Egypt. Again, over and over and again, showing his glory. By, by the way, why does he do this? Is, is there anything inherently good in the people? And we can blame Israel all we want. We're good at blaming other nations. We're good at blaming other people. But if we compare ourselves, ourselves, myself, I should say, can we be just as rebellious? Thank God for his grace. By the way, this is, we're going to get to see this. It's amazing. This is why we get to celebrate communion. Verse 15, but I took a solemn oath against them in the wilderness. I swore I would not bring them into the land I'd given them. Land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful place on earth. For they rejected my regulations, refused to follow my decrees, and violated my Sabbath days. Their, their hearts were given to their idols. Nevertheless, I took pity on them and held back from destroying them in the wilderness. And I warned their children not to follow in their foot, parents' footsteps, defiling themselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God, I told them. Follow my decrees, pay attention to my regulations, keep my Sabbath days holy, for they are a sign to remind you that I am the Lord your God. The next generation is given the same decrees from God, the same loving commandments from God. After they had seen their parents die in the wilderness, by the way, every single person except for Joshua and Caleb, they, they, they watched as their parents die. Anyone over the age of 20 died in the wilderness. Verse 18, again, you can read it in greater detail in the book of Exodus, but this is a great synopsis. By the way, this story is the most told story in the Bible. We see it not only in the Old Testament multiple times, but even in the New Testament. When Stephen was, you know, being uh, stoned to death, or right before he was being stoned to death, he describes the history of Israel. Just like this, by the way. Verse 18, Then I warned their children not to follow in their parents' footsteps, defiling themselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God, I told them. Follow my decrees, pay attention to my regulations, keep my Sabbath days holy, for they are signed to remind you that I am the Lord your God, but their children too rebelled against me. Would we ever put up with a, you know, anyone that acted like them? Would we ever put up with, you know, maybe, you know, if we think of ourselves, you know, too highly or whatever, you know, a friend that we have or something like that. How many times does it take for them to offend us before we no longer call them a friend? Yeah. <laughs> if that, you know. That, that, that's, a, I mean, that's a really good friend if you put up with them five times. But do you understand that God puts up with them not just once, not just twice, but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of them constantly rebelling against him. Nevertheless, I withdrew my judgment against them to protect the honor of my name before the nations that had seen my power in bringing them out of Egypt. But I took a solemn oath against them in the wilderness. I swear, I, I swore I would scatter them among all the nations because they did not obey my regulations. They scorned my decrees by violating my Sabbath days. They did not obey 
my regulations, longing for the idols of their ancestors. I gave them over to the worthless decrees and regulations that would not lead to life. I let them pollute themselves with the very gifts I had given them. And I allowed them to give their firstborn children as offerings to their gods so that I might devastate them and remind them that I alone am the Lord. And by the way, if you come next week when we're reading chapter 23, you'll see in great detail what this looks like. It's horrific. Absolutely horrific. Th those things that God had blessed Israel with they now use to worship other gods with. Those children that God had blessed Israel with, they now use as sacrifice to other gods. It's horrendous. Verse 27, Therefore, son of man, give the people of Israel this message from the sovereign Lord. Your ancestors continued to blaspheme and betray me, for when I brought them into the land, I had promised them. They offered sacrifices on every high hill, under every green tree. They saw, they roused my fury as they offered my sacrifices to their gods. They brought their perfumes and incense and poured out their liquid offerings to them. I said to them, what is this high place where you are going? This kind of pagan shrine has been called Bama, high place ever since. Therefore, give the people of Israel this message from the sovereign Lord. Do you plan to pollute yourselves just as your ancestors did? Do you intend to keep prostituting yourselves by worshiping vile images? I hope you're paying attention to the way God describes sin in these passages. Because we're good at explaining sin away. We're, we're, we're good at, you know, whitewashing sin. We, we describe it as, you know, white lies or my bad or, or blaming it on someone else or, or the, the, those things that we just, uh, oops, or my mistake, when it's actually a sin, when it's actually something that I did to offend God or, or God will forgive me. Do you understand that the way that it's described, not only here, but but throughout this section from chapter 16 to chapter 23, it's always described with these... Um, uh, these um, adjectives, right? Yeah, adjectives before the nouns. This detestable, it's vile. It's something that offends God. It's something that we do literally in rebellion to God, purposely choosing to sin. It's not something that we stumble into. It's not something that we somehow make a mistake or it's an accident. No, it's something that I'm choosing to do as a rebellion against the loving God who died for me. That, that's the way the Bible describes sin. We're so easy to explain it away or especially when it's our own, by the way. You know. we're, we're not so gracious to other people, but we're very gracious to ourselves. Look at what God continues to say there. For when you offer gifts to them and give your little children to be burned as sacrifices, you continue to pollute yourselves with idols to this day. Should I allow you to ask for a message from me, O people of Israel? As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I will tell you nothing. This is why God is not talking to them. Because their sin is a barrier between them and God. They say, Lord, bless us. Lord, speak to us as they're literally sacrificing their own children. As they're literally thumbing their nose at God. As they're literally sinning in the face of God. Now, we understand that God is holy. If you were with us when we were in the book of Isaiah, there at the very beginning, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Isaiah gets to see into the very throne room of a holy and righteous God, and he falls on his face, right? Oh, woe is me. I am an unclean man amongst unclean people. The preparation of Isaiah for that long 66-chapter book. Or Jeremiah, we saw him, 52 chapters where, where God uses him to, to weep and lament over the people's sins. 
Now Ezekiel is getting the same. Who's going to stand in the gap for people that are prostituting themselves to other idols, other things than God? Verse 32, you say, we want to be like the nations all around us who serve idols of wood and stone. But what you have in mind will never happen. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I will rule over you with an iron fist and great anger and with awesome power. They were, they were jealous of the other nations. They, they wanted to look like them. They wanted the same things as everybody else. They wanted a king. They, they wanted the idols or the accoutrements of their religious worship. They wanted to look like the surrounding nations, just, by the way, just like us. We do exactly the same thing. We're envious of other people's stuff, other people's things. And we actually put those things before God, too. We, we just, you know, make them, you know, have pretty lights. We just hold them in our hands. They're portable. Verse 34. And in anger, I will reach out with my strong hand and powerful arm, and I will bring you back from the lands where you were scattered. I will bring you into the wilderness of the nations, and there I will judge you face to face. By the way, this is mercy and grace. Why would we call the judgment of God mercy and grace? Why would we call that grace and mercy? You guys remember that we've been, as we've been going through the last 19 chapters, we've seen over and over again that God as a loving father disciplines his children. If they're not his children, he's not going to discipline them. They're illegitimate. But because they're his children, he takes the time to discipline them. He takes the time, as it says, literally personally taking them off into a foreign country, making sure that, yes, they're all together. But he sets apart one man, Ezekiel, to make sure that they are fed the word of God. Even without a temple. Even without a, a home city. They're still receiving the word of uh, God, even though harsh it may be. Verse 36, I will judge you there just as I did your ancestors in the wilderness. After bringing them out of Egypt, says the sovereign Lord, I will examine you carefully and hold you to the terms of the covenant. And there it is. Monday nights, we're going through the book of Hebrews, and we learned that this word covenant literally means testimony. You know, we, we've, I've said it before, and, and you've heard it before. You know, it's something like a, a last will and testament, right? Just like our Old Testament and New Testament. It literally means old covenant and the new covenant. And they're both sealed in the blood of Jesus Christ. We'll get a glimpse of that tonight. I love how the, the Bible always is a prelude to what we're going to get to do. I mean, hopefully you're, you're excited about communion. The privilege that we have is we're going to be able to take communion tonight. To know that our sins have been forgiven. But there was a penalty for sin. That none of us could ever accomplish or ever pay for. Even the people of Israel, they couldn't pay for their own sins. They were looking forward to the Messiah. We look, for, we look backward to Jesus Christ. We understand what he did for us on the cross. Verse 37 describes it like this. I will examine you carefully, hold you to the terms of the covenant. I will purge you of all those rebel and revolt against me. I will bring them out of the countries where they are in exile, but they will never enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 39, as for you, O people of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Go right ahead and worship your idols, but sooner or later you will obey me and will bring, be, stop bringing shame on my holy name by worshiping idols. They're going to get bored of the religious services. 
For on my holy mountain, the great mountain of Israel, says the sovereign Lord, the people of Israel will someday worship me and I will accept them. There I will require that you bring me all your offerings and choice gifts and sacrifices. And when I bring you home from exile, you will be like a pleasing sacrifice to me. By the way, it's not the, the sacrifices or the gifts. It's the people, the, the changed hearts of the people, just like with us today. And I will accept them. There I will require that you bring me all your offerings and choice gifts and sacrifices. And when I bring you home from exile, you will be like pleasing sacrifice to me. I will display my holiness through you as all the nations watch. The original plan of God for the nation of Israel. Yes, he had a plan for them way back then. And God in his patience and his mercy and his grace has waited hundreds and hundreds of years for them to come to this point where they finally realize that God is the one they want to worship. Then when I have brought you home to the land, I promise with a solemn oath to give to your ancestors, you will know that I am the Lord. Thank God for that. We'll look back on all the ways you defiled yourselves and will hate yourselves because of the evil you have done. You will know that I am the Lord, O people of Israel, when I have honored my name by treating you mercifully in spite of your weakness. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. We know that the phrase sovereign Lord is used 410 times in the book of Ezekiel. But this phrase, I the sovereign Lord have spoken, is also used more times in the book of Ezekiel than any other book. In fact, it's only used two times outside of the book of Ezekiel. One time in the book of Jeremiah, one time in the book of Amos. Every other time that it's said in the Bible, it is always in the book of Ezekiel. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. It all comes back to the name of God. God's name is holy. He always keeps his name holy. Every single instance that we see of his grace and mercy to the people of Israel isn't so much for their sake as it is God's sake to proclaim his name as holy. And it's true for us too, by the way. We are a representative of God to the world. That's what Christian means, by the way, right? Little Christ, your follower of Christ. That, that's why we bear the title Christian. We, we bear the name of Christ. And when we say that I'm a Christian, what is the first thing that people look at? Yeah, how we act, right? Why? Why do they do that? Because we represent Christ. We represent Jesus Christ. The last five verses there at the end of chapter 20. I know this is a long chapter, but it, it actually ends in, in the Hebrew Bible. This, this part is actually part of chapter 21. There's actually five parables that are going to be one right after another. Five visions. We'll, we'll see a lot of these visions, and we've already been seeing a lot of these visions in uh, the book of Ezekiel. But, but in the Hebrew Bible, this is actually a, a part of chapter 21. Let me read it to you. I'm just going to read the whole thing here. Then this message came to me from the Lord, son of man, turn and face south and speak out against it, prophesy against the brushlands of the Negev, and tell the southern wilderness, this is what the sovereign Lord says, hear the word of the Lord. I will set you on fire. Every tree, both green and dry, will burn. The terrible flames will not be quenched and will scorch everything from south to north. And everyone in the world will see that I, the Lord, have set this fire. It will not be put out. Then I said, O sovereign Lord, they are saying to me, he only talks in riddles. This is what the people were saying about Ezekiel. Kind of like what Jesus did in the New Testament, right? He... he told um, parables. And a lot of times he spoke that way as a, as a way to, you know, first of all, veil the truth from those that 
you know, were sinners, the leaders of the, you know, Israelite nation's religious system, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but also as a relatable way to the common people. He would tell parables in a language they understood, fishing, and farming, agriculture. He would come to them on their own uh, language. This Negev is actually the southern region south of uh, Israel. This is where the, the Edomites would have been. Modern-day southern Jordan today, uh, the nation of, of Ammon, Edom, that were kind of grouped right next to each other. And you remember who the Edomites were, right? They were the descendants of Esau, the twin brother of, of Jacob or Israel. And so this, this parable, this riddle is now uh, tied into this next chapter. And there's going to be four parts to this next chapter. Each of them are represented by a sword, an implement of war, an implement of destruction. The first seven verses here describe the sword as being drawn, taken out of its sheath, ready to be used. Then this message came to me from the Lord, son of man, turn and face Jerusalem and prophesy against Israel in her sanctuaries. Tell her, this is what the Lord says, I am your enemy, O Israel. What? Why, why would God say that he's their enemy? I'm about to unsheath my sword to destroy your people, the righteous and the wicked alike. Yes, I will cut off both the righteous and the wicked. I will draw my sword against everyone in the land from south to north. Everyone in the world will know that I am the Lord. My sword is in my hand and I will not return to its sheath. And it will not return to its sheath until its work is finished. I'm not going to put away until it's done. How, how terrifying is that when, when God pulls out his sword? Oh, to be in the hands of a living God, as the book of Hebrews says. It's terrifying. Verse 6, Son of man, groan before the people, groan before them with bitter anguish and a broken heart. When they ask, why are you groaning? Tell them, I groan because of the terrifying news I have heard. When it comes true, the boldest heart will melt with fear. All strength will disappear. Every spirit will faint. Strong knees will become as weak as water. And the sovereign Lord says, it is coming. It's on its way. By the way, this is the first time that Ezekiel cries for the people. It's not like with Jeremiah where he literally every chapter he's weeping, he's crying, he's lamenting. The book of Lamentations, five chapters full of the cries of a heart of a man of God who's crying for his people. This is the first time that Ezekiel weeps. He groans for the people. Why? Because God's unsheathed his sword. Continues on. By the way, I don't know if you've ever you know, had a sword or a knife, but there's something that you have to do that tool, that weapon on purpose. You know, we, we do it with, you know, cutting knives, right? What happens when the knife stops cutting? What do you have to do to it? This is exactly what God does. I can't imagine that honing stone, by the way. And the Lord said to me, son of man, give the people this message from the Lord. A sword, a sword is being sharpened and polished. It is sharpened for terrible slaughter and polished to flash like lightning. Do you see it? Do you see the description that Ezekiel is giving? And now you will you laugh? Those far stronger than you have fallen beneath its power. Yes, the sword is now being sharpened and polished. It is being prepared for the executioner. Son of man, cry out and wail. Pound your thighs in anguish. For that sword will slaughter my people and their leaders. Everyone will die. He'll put them all to the test. What chance do they have? Says the sovereign Lord, son of man, prophesy to them and clap your hands. Clap your thighs, clap your hands. Then take the sword and brandish it twice, even three times to symbolize the great massacre, the great massacre facing them on every side. And you remember earlier in the book of Ezekiel, God had told Ezekiel to shave his head with a sword. Remember that? 
shave his beard with a sword. By, by the way, he was a priest too, remember? They weren't allowed to do that. But Ezekiel showing them that dividing up of the hair and then tying that little remnant, that little small bundle of hair and putting it on his robe. Let your hearts melt with terror, for the sword glitters at every gate, flashes like lightning, is polished for slaughter. O oh, sword, slash to the right, then slash to the left, wherever you will, whatever, wherever you want. I too will clap my hands and I will satisfy my fury. I, the Lord, have spoken. Where is the sword brandished against? Where is it pointed to? city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel. Not just them, by the way, but the surrounding nations, including Ammon. And by the way, this would be considered modern-day Jordan, just right across the Jordan River. Then this message came to me from the Lord, son of man. Make a map and trace two routes on it for the sword of Babylon's king to follow. Put a signpost on the road that comes of Babylon where the road forks into two. One road going to Ammon and its capital, Reba, and the other to Judah and fortified Jerusalem. The king of Babylon now stands at the fork, uncertain whether to attack Jerusalem or Reba. He calls his magicians to look for omens. They cast lots by shaking arrows from the quiver. They inspect the livers of animal sacrifices. The omen in his right hand says, Jerusalem with battering rams. His soldiers will go against the gates shouting for the kill. They will put up siege towers and build ramps against the walls. Who is directing the armies of Babylon? You know, it's God. Even though they think they're, they're doing these mythical things or these mystical things or however you say it. The, the looking at the various livers of animals, shaking of the, the, you know, the dice or the, the, the arrow, seeing which way they point, where should they go. God's directing it, by the way. Look how they do this. Verse 23, the people of Jerusalem will think it is a false omen because of their treaty with the Babylonians. But the king of Babylon will remind the people of their rebellion. Then he will attack and capture them. And therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says again and again. You remind me of your sin and your guilt. You don't even try to hide it. And everything you do, your sins are obvious for all to see. So now the time of your punishment has come. By the way, the word of God is more relevant and more current than today's newspaper or today's blog or whatever you read for your news. Do you understand how exactly it is today? We say the Old Testament's archaic. We say the Old Testament was way back then, some 2,500, 2,700 years ago. It doesn't apply to today. Do you, do you see it? I'm so glad you're here tonight to see it. A lot of people ignore it. Verse 24, therefore this is what the sovereign Lord says again and again. You remind me of your sin and guilt. It's right before my face. You don't even try to hide it. Your sins are obvious for all to see. I, I, I know I said it in a different voice earlier. Hopefully you'll get it one way or the other. Hopefully I'll get it one way or the other. So now the time of your punishment has come. Oh, you corrupt, wicked prince of Israel, your final day of reckoning is here. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Take off your jeweled crown, for the old order changes. Now the lowly will be exalted and the mighty will be brought down. Destruction, destruction. I will surely destroy the kingdom and I will not be, and it will not be restored until the one appears who has the right to judge it. Then I will hand it over to him. Do you understand how powerful this is? When God unleashes his sword, 
whether it was with the elders, as we read two weeks ago, the elders of the people of Israel, whether it was against their, their kings, their religious order, the people that were literally brandishing their sins before God and not caring, that hole that Ezekiel had dug through the temple in his vision and, and seeing those priests, those 70 elders that were supposed to be representatives before God, instead bowing down to the sun, bowing down to foreign idols. Literally rebelling against God. It's horrible. Verse 28, Now son of man prophesy against the Ammonites and their mockery. Give them this message from the sovereign Lord. And you guys remember where the Ammonites came from. They were the, the, the brother of Moab, the, the son slash at the same exact time, grandsons of Lot through his daughters. A sword, a sword is drawn for your slaughter. It is polished to destroy, flashing like lightning. Your prophets have given false vision. Your fortune tellers have told lies. The sword will fall on the necks of the wicked for whom the day of final reckoning has come. Now return the sword to its sheath. Finally, God's putting his sword back in. For in your country, the land of your birth, I will pass judgment upon you. I will pour out my fury on you and blow on you with the fire of my anger. I will hand you over to cruel men who are skilled in destruction. You will be fuel for the fire and your blood will be spilled in your own land. You will be utterly wiped out, your memory lost history for I the Lord have spoken chapter 22 verse 1 this is a prelude now to chapter 23 the segue between these chapters that are between chapter 16 and chapter 23 this is the more academic approach I guess you could say 23 is going to be the more graphic approach to sin but, but look at how sin is described. Now this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, are you ready to judge Jerusalem? Are you ready to judge this city of murderers? Publicly denounce her detestable sins and give her this message from the sovereign Lord. Remember, Ezekiel has been told to be a watchman. One who watches, observes, and warns. O city of murderers, doomed and damned, city of idols, filthy and foul. You are guilty because of the blood you have shed. You are defiled because of the idols you have made. Your day of destruction has come. You have reached the end of your years. I will make you an object of mockery throughout the world. O infamous city filled with confusion, you will be mocked by people far and near. How does God describe sin, by the way? Again, this phrase, detestable sin, just like sovereign Lord, the sovereign Lord has spoken, this word detestable sin, this, this phrase, this adjective, and this noun describing sin is used 32 times in the book of Ezekiel, more times than any other point in the whole Bible. Only 40 times in the whole Bible as a whole, 32 of those times in the book of Ezekiel. Do you think God is describing sin as it really is? Do you understand that's why we're going to celebrate communion tonight? Because why did Jesus die? Do you understand when I, when I look at my life, when I look at my sins and I recognize them for what they really are, as vile, as detestable, it changes my perspective. It, it, it helps us to understand that we're really in need of a Savior. Because most people redefine what sin is. And, and then when you redefine what sin is, then we don't need a Savior. Because my, my goodness is good enough. My, my, my actions are good enough. They're just mistakes or accidents or something that I goofed on. 
But when I, when I look at the way the Bible describes sin, the way God describes sin, how he is holy and righteous, and I, I am a sinner in need of a savior, my sins have separated me from a holy and righteous God. They are detestable, vile, as we see here throughout this whole chapter and the following chapters. It is going to be very, very graphic. I warn you about next week. It's going to be hard. Harder for me than you, but it'll be hard. Tonight we get to celebrate communion. Because Jesus Christ came to die for our sins. And every time we get to do this, and we traditionally do it on the, the first Wednesday of the month, and I'll ask the guys to, to come forward. I hope you really understand what communion means. This isn't just something we do out of habit or tradition. It's something that has meaning. It's a sacrament. We don't believe it's the literal blood of Jesus Christ, the literal, you know, body of Jesus Christ. But we understand that it is holy, it is sacrament, it's something that we remember what Jesus Christ did for us. Every single time we take it, we remember that he died on the cross for us. And so as the, the men go around and hand out the elements, I, I ask that you would hold those things in your hand. Examine yourself. That's what we're called to do. First Corinthians tells us to do that. We, we would examine ourselves as we hold those elements and, and literally understand that if we take this in vain, it means nothing. By the way, the only requirements, you don't have to be a member of this church. I don't know how many times any of you have come. You just have to know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Otherwise, it's literally meaningless. It's just a cracker that doesn't taste good and a little cup of juice. That's it. But when, when, when you understand that you have a relationship, communion with a holy and righteous God, as you hold those elements, they have meaning. This represents the body and the blood of Jesus Christ given for you. So as the men uh, hand out these elements, please hold them in your hand. We'll take it together.
In Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, it says, And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread. He blessed it and broke it. Yours is right down here. And gave it to the disciples and said, and this we get to do corporately tonight, by the way. It's something that's precious. That I get to celebrate with you, my friends and my family, my church body. And every time we take it, we remember what Jesus Christ did for us. Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body. you really, as you chew upon it, savor it, remember what Jesus Christ did for us, his broken body on the cross for us. Then he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, just like what we were talking about in the book of Ezekiel. It's amazing how the old and the new reflect each other. Which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Those sins that I have committed. God sent his son Jesus Christ. Not just to cover but to take away. To remove. To separate from me as far as the east is from the west. To the very depths of the ocean. No longer remembered in the memory of God. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Can you imagine the communion in heaven where, where, where you get, you know, amazing cups with new taste buds and being able to experience communion with God? They're at that massive privilege of being there at the very wedding feast of the lamb and we get to celebrate it this is just a glimpse by the way so as we take it tonight remember the shed blood of jesus christ for you But it doesn't stop there, and all of you know that have been here on first Wednesdays of the month, you know that. The very next verse, the very next verse, the part that is always separated in our Bibles with another title, another paragraph. We don't normally associate with this, but exactly what they do right after they take communion when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And as we do on Wednesday nights, we get to sing a hymn together. I, I just want to read the, it'll be the, the second verse here. It says, sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer. The joys I feel, the bliss I share. Of those whose anxious spirits burn with strong desires for thy return. Wow. Exactly what communion represents, by the way. This is just a glimpse of what we get to experience in eternity. Is there someone who will stand in the gap until the Lord returns? Will you pray? With such, I hasten to this place where God, my Savior, shows his face and gladly take my station there and wait for thee, sweet hour of prayer. Please stand with me. If you know it, sing it. If you don't, you'll know it by the third verse or second verse. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer. That calls me from a world of care And bids me at my Father's throne Makes all my wants and wishes known In seasons of distress and grief My soul has all and bound relief. 
and of escape the tempter's snare by thy return, sweet Alfred. Sweet Alfred, sweet Alfred, the joys I feel, the bliss I share of those who anxious spirits burn with strong desires for thy return. With such I hasten to the place where God my Savior shows his face and gladly take my station there and wait for thee, sweet hour of prayer. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, thy wings shall my petition bear to him whose truth and faithfulness engage the waiting soul to bless and since he bids me seek his face believe his word and trust his grace i'll cast on him my every care and wait for thee sweet hour of prayer sweet hour of prayer sweet hour of prayer May thy consolation share Till from Mount Pisgah's lofty height I view my home and take my flight This robe of flesh I'll drop and rise To seize the air the lasting prize and shalt well passing through the air farewell farewell sweet hour of prayer and so father tonight i ask you bless these my friends and my family not just for giving up their their evening i hope it doesn't feel that way but instead for blessing them tonight Lord, that they truly, as being here, understand just a, a little bit, a glimpse of your heart. And to be able to understand that there is a true need, not just uh, when, when Ezekiel was writing this book, but even today for those that would stand in the gap, for those that would understand what it means that sin does to a human heart, how it separates, corrupts, it is detestable. There is only one way that we can come to you. It is only through your son, Jesus Christ, the one who died for us through his blood shed for us. And so, Lord, tonight is that aftertaste in our mouth that, that we wouldn't just forget about, walk through those doors and then just go on about our our business, but that you would truly change us, that we would not be the same as when we entered into this room, that we would have a, a desire, not only for holiness in our own lives, but a desire to be um, an example to those around us, that we would be your lights in a dying world. We would share your love and your mercy to those around us. And we would be your example, the true definition of a Christian. So, Lord, I thank you for these, my friends and my family. I ask you bless them tonight. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. Thank